Welcome to this peer voice activity. To access the entire activity, including supporting material, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash M-E-Y. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Sarepta Therapeutics. Welcome to this peer voice panel discussion on limb girdle muscular dystrophy. This activity comprises two presentations featuring Drs. Nicholas Johnson and Peter Kang. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Hello, this is Peter Kang. I am a pediatric neurologist from the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Welcome to this activity discussing the complexities of limb girdle muscular dystrophy, a rare neuromuscular condition. It's a pleasure to be addressing this topic with my colleague, Dr. Nicholas Johnson, a neurologist from Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia. So first, let's talk about what limb girdle muscular dystrophy is. It's a collection of over 30 different disorders characterized by proximal weakness that slowly progresses. The weakness affects the shoulder and hip girdles and spreads to other muscles over time. The worldwide prevalence estimates vary from 0.8 to 6.9 cases per 100,000 people. What that translates into for the United States is approximately 3 to 24,000 affected individuals. So Nick, would you like to describe the clinical presentation of LGMD for us? Uh, most of the, the core features of the presentation are actually in the name uh, in that it causes slowly progressive symmetric weakness typically of the pelvic girdle and the scapular humeral muscles. Um, children are more likely to have uh, lower extremity weakness um, alone rather than a combination of hip and shoulder girdle uh, weakness, um, but that there's some variation there. Um, depending on the subtype, um, cardiomyopathy may be present, but it may not. Respiratory involvement may be uh, present, but um, um, doesn't always happen. And then for some particular subtypes like dysphalinopathy, for example, Oftentimes, there's an overlap with distal weakness, but again, that's quite variable. Important to recognize things that are not present, so limb girdle muscular dystrophies never involve the extraocular mus muscles. Um, facial weakness is quite uncommon. It may be seen in severe forms of LGBTR1, but otherwise, typically not present. And then similarly, intellectual impairments um, can be seen in the, some of the less common recessive subtypes, particularly those with an overlap with congenital muscular dystrophies, but tends to really be quite uncommon in these disorders. Great. And could you explain to us the difference between dominant and recessive forms of limb girdle muscular dystrophy and some of the subtypes that are common? Sure. So the um, these are general principles or rules because uh, no matter what, there are exceptions um, to them. Um, but generally speaking, recessive forms of limb girdle muscular dystrophy tend to be the, the vast majority of patients, well over 90%, um, with at least 24 to 27 different subtypes. They tend to have an earlier age of onset, so childhood to young adulthood. Uh, they tend to be slightly more severe um, uh, weak, limb weakness, and the CK levels are often at least mildly elevated, but maybe highly elevated. Contrast that with dominant limb girdle muscular dystrophy, so these tend to be less common, so about 10% of patients. Is about five subtypes. They tend to have a later on age of onsets, uh, even well into late adulthood. Uh, the limb weakness tends to be a little milder. 
uh, and the CK level may be normal to mildly elevated. So when you're thinking about these different subtypes, um, our old naming system would call them LGMD2 for, recess- for recessive, one being dominant, and the letter assigned to it refers to the order in which that gene was described. Uh, because there are so many different types of recessive limb girl muscular dystrophy, the naming system was changed uh, where now R is recessive and then the 1 um, signals the gene mutation. So, for example, calpane 3 causes LGMD2A or now LGMDR1. Um, some of the common forms or subtypes of limb girl muscular dystrophy that you might see um, in- include these uh, here where you might see calpane 3, dysferlin, members of the sarcoglycan complex, so alpha, beta, gamma, and delta, um, and then FKRPN and Noctamin 5, by and, by and large, um, encompass the vast majority of all in girl osteotrophies. So let's discuss the case of a six-year-old girl with difficulty walking to illustrate what happens in LGMD. This girl had a normal birth, and her early development was normal. Her parents were of European Caucasian descent. She presents with difficulty walking, difficulty ascending stairs, and also reported pain in her lower extremities for the past 18 months. So, Nick, please describe how you would diagnose this patient. Yeah, I think, um, you know, given the history and some of the um, exam findings, with, which are really describing proximal weakness that's slowly progressive and developed after the age of two or infancy, which is when you might be thinking about like a congenital muscular dystrophy, you might be thinking about a, a limb girl muscular dystrophy or one of the related disorders. If it was in a boy, you would certainly be considering Duchenne uh, muscular dystrophy as one of the potential causes. But um, since that's unlikely to present in this age range in girls, thinking more commonly about uh, limb girdle muscular dystrophy. So um, some things that are uh, would be helpful to check early on. Um, a CK, again, to help try and differentiate between those dominant and recessive forms of limb girl muscular dystrophy. An EMG may or may not be helpful, but it would certainly point you in the direction of um, a myogenic process. And then also an MRI can also really show you uh, whether or not there's muscle involvement and may replace or supplant the EMG based on where your um, place of practice is. Um, once you get some of that information back, I think almost certainly you would move towards one of these large sponsor genetic testing panels with over 100 different genes that might cause limb girdle muscular dystrophy or related disorders. So one of the big controversies, Peter, um, as of late, is that since these genetic testing panels are now um, readily accessible and a lot easier to do than they used to be, you know, where does muscle biopsy fit in? So that's a really good question, Nick. And and that's something that comes up in our practice a lot. Earlier in my career, I would definitely turn the muscle biopsy earlier in the evaluation, especially if it seemed like the uh, initially available genetic testing uh, wouldn't yield a good diagnosis. Um, however, these days with the widespread availability of very robust next generation sequencing, uh, I turn the muscle biopsy less often. It is still a valuable tool. And so, for example, in the patient that we've been talking about, um, we would see on a muscle biopsy typical dystrophic features with degenerating and regenerating fibers, fatty replacement, connective tissue replacement, variability in fiber size, 
And then on immunohistochemistry, uh, you would see in particular gamma sarcoglycan staining uh, being absent. And so this biopsy result would point towards a specific gene, but that doesn't always happen in these evaluations. And so muscle biopsy definitely has a role in the evaluation of some of these patients. It's just used less often than before. So Nick, could you tell us a little bit about the differences in damage severity in muscle groups between different LGMD types? Yeah, so um, even though all forms of limb girdle muscular dystrophy really reflect the same uh, proximal weakness, there are different muscles that are affected. Um, and with, uh, again, the more ubiquitous use of muscle MRI, it's a lot easier to see that here. Um, so the sarcoglycans um, tend to uh, affect, um, you know, some of the more core muscles within the hip, uh, particularly the vastus lateralis, vastus medialis, uh, versus the uh, dysphalinopathy patients where you can see more involvement, for example, of the rectus femoris. Um, and then uh, calpianopathy, interestingly enough, um, tends to affect more of the posterior compartment first of the um, of the proximal thigh. So there are some differences. Um, and in fact, you can actually use muscle MRI if you so choose um, to really uh, guide you in a direction that, that of what that particular pattern would represent. At the end of the day, you're still going to end up doing that genetic testing to confirm it. But um, this pattern can be helpful in terms of recognizing which specific form of limb girdle muscular dystrophy it is. It's, uh, it's great that we have so many diagnostic tools and, and oftentimes genetic testing will lead us to the right answer pretty quickly these days. And uh, unfortunately, there are cases where that doesn't happen. But in the case that we're discussing, um, we have been able to move forward with that, uh, with a genetic diagnosis. So if we fast forward a little bit with this patient uh, three years later, uh, unfortunately, we see that ambulation has worsened since then. Um, she does remain partially ambulatory. A brief trial of prednisone stabilized her strength. However, the prednisone triggered some significant and persistent weight gain. So that was a side effect that um, we unfortunately see sometimes with steroid use chronically. So, uh, Nick, would you like to talk a little bit about management recommendations for LGMD? So the core management uh, re revolves around a multidisciplinary team in an MDA neuromuscular clinic, uh, usually including physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy, along with alongside with access to orthotics and other durable medical equipment services. Um, and that's really important to help patients manage the weakness that's progressive. Um, oftentimes, in addition, um, access to cardiac pulmonary orthopedic services may be important. Again, somewhat depending on what subtype it is, um, but it is important to have that as part of it. Uh, and then, you know, it really is important to have um, good genetic counseling. These are genetic diseases. Um, if one family member is affected with it, it does generally elevate the risk of others developing um, the same condition or even future generations, depending on what the specific form of limb girdle muscular dystrophy it is. Um, and then we do know that it's kind of a, if you don't use it, you lose it type of situation. We want people to remain active um, and continue to participate uh, it safely, but as long as they possibly can. Right now, there are no FDA approved uh, medications, but I think as we'll talk in a little bit, it's important to 
uh, look to the future and, and gene replacement therapies for these particular condition, conditions. Peter, would you have anything that you would add to this? That's pretty comprehensive, and I agree completely with that approach. Uh, sometimes patients ask me what the limit should be on their activity, and I often tell them to try to listen to their body. And if, if they're doing something that's triggering pain or muscle cramping, um, they should heed that sort of warning that their body is giving them and slow down or take a break at that point. Um, but uh, barring something like that occurring, uh, they should remain very active. So in summary, it's important to remember that LGMDs can be inherited in autosomal dominant or recessive patterns. Uh, the dominant forms are less prevalent than the recessive forms, and they tend to affect individuals at older ages, and both forms are chronically progressive. The, the recessive forms of LGMD often have younger ages of onset, more rapid loss of strength, and, and typically higher CK levels than the dominant forms of LGMD. Genetic testing really has become the gold standard of diagnosis. We really don't consider an LGMD diagnosis to be complete unless there's genetic confirmation. The current management approach to LGMD relies on supportive care, which is very important and can have a significant impact on outcomes. There is a clear unmet need for managing people with LGMD, which calls for the development of new therapeutic approaches. Thank you for watching. Please join us at the next session where we will explore current approaches to genetic testing in LGMD and the landscape of observational and interventional studies. Hello, this is Nicholas Johnson. I'm a neurologist from Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia, specializing in neuromuscular disorders like the muscular dystrophies. Welcome to this activity around the importance of genetic testing and accurate diagnosis for limb girdle muscular dystrophy, a rare neuromuscular condition. It's my pleasure to be addressing this topic with my colleague, Dr. Peter Kang, a pediatric neurologist from the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Why is a genetic diagnosis important for limb girdle muscular dystrophy? A genetic diagnosis is really critical for both the prognosis, uh, for designing a regimen for supportive therapies, understanding whether or not there's cardiac or pulmonary complications that are common for that subtype, engaging in genetic counseling and family planning. And really what I'm most excited about is the ability to be eligible for potentially new molecular therapies that target specific genes and even specific mutation types. And then finally, as a corollary to that, we know that there are ongoing natural history studies um, that are supporting the development of these molecular therapies. Many of those require a genetic diagnosis. So all the important reasons to go through the steps to get to that genetic testing. So um, today, um, the genetic testing um, is probably a little bit different than what we would have done in the past uh, for that particular case that we saw in our last session. Back then, when that case was, was described, you know, there was a serum CK of greater than 1,000. There was a myogenic EMG and a muscle MRI. I believe at that time there was a muscle biopsy because it was consistent with the practice at that time. Now we know, however, that you can move forward almost directly with that um, large sponsored genetic testing panel, which would have shown um, two um, variant pathogenic variants in succoglycan gamma, uh, which would have been consistent with LGMD R5 and 2C. Peter, do you have any other thoughts about this? 
I think that the diagnostic capabilities that we have today are, are tremendously better than what we had in the past. Muscle biopsy is invasive, and, and so even though it's a very useful diagnostic tool, we don't want to overuse it, and we don't want to subject patients, especially children, to these procedures unnecessarily. So nowadays, we turn to genetic testing more readily. It more frequently yields a definitive diagnosis, and it's become the mainstay of our diagnostic evaluation. Uh, there are other test modalities that are helpful, uh, muscle MRI, muscle ultrasound, and a traditional test, the EMG, can sometimes be of use, um, although not very often. That's typically done when the CK level is either normal or only mildly elevated, and you're trying to figure out whether this is truly a muscle disease versus a nerve disease. But in the vast majority of cases, an EMG is not performed anymore. And in the vast majority of cases, uh, muscle biopsies are not performed either. So Peter, can you tell us a little bit about what available next generation testing methods for limb girdle muscular dystrophy are? Yes, we've, we've got a wealth of options now for genetic testing. The most popular and commonly used approach for limb girdle muscular dystrophy is gene panel testing. Uh, this used to be based on Sanger sequencing technology, uh, which was very limited in retrospect. Nowadays, we have next-generation technologies, uh, which means that a panel may have over 100 genes. And so the sequencing is much more powerful, and we have good diagnostic yield on this. If gene panel testing doesn't yield the, uh, an answer that helps us with the diagnosis, then there are other options that could be used. Whole exome sequencing is widely available. Whole genome sequencing is a little bit less commonly done, but it can detect non-coding variants that are sometimes disease-causing. And then there's transcriptome sequencing, otherwise known as RNA sequencing or RNA-seq. And that's done typically on muscle tissue to detect in, uh, the consequences of splicing variants and other uh, less common variants in the DNA causing limb girdle muscular dystrophy. So, I mean, I think in summary, Peter, what you're saying is that uh, our ability to diagnose limb girdle muscular dystrophy has improved because of better techniques and frankly, because of advocacy groups and other partners sponsoring these next generation panels and making them uh, much more accessible. Um, one thing that is a new problem is this challenge of variants of unknown significance. Right, Peter, that's something that is um, as is, is a new problem with the more ubiquitous use of, gener of genetic testing. It's, um, it's an unfortunate side effect that the more powerful the genetic testing, the more variants we pick up, which means that some of them inevitably are ones that we can't really figure out. So variants can be pathogenic or likely pathogenic, and that suggests that they are disease-causing, or they can be benign, uh, indicating that they're not related to the disease at all. But then there's the middle ground, the variants of unknown significance. And that's very frustrating for patients and clinicians and everybody involved in the patient's care because that sort of leads you, with, uh, leads you with a lot of questions. Are they really related? Is it just a coincidence? Are they truly benign? And so, uh, so this is a, an area that we need to improve our uh, genetic testing. So if you do see one of these variants, um, what would you do? Do you have a pathway of how you would manage that? 
Sometimes the situation can be resolved by doing further genetic testing. So one option would be to pursue whole exome or whole genome sequencing, especially if you have multiple variants of unknown significance and you're trying to see if maybe additional variants will show up on more detailed testing that might help you resolve the situation. Uh, th this is also a situation where you would consider a muscle biopsy. Sometimes you can get hints on muscle biopsy about what subtype of muscular dystrophy you're, you're dealing with. Um, and, and so there are other diagnostic tests you can pursue. There are the imaging studies such as muscle MRI and muscle ultrasound. And then if you go even further, you can do functional testing in the laboratory. That's typically done on a research basis where you can replicate some of these variants and see in model systems whether they replicate the disease. That's something that's hard to scale up, but uh, we are making progress in, in various labs uh, in terms of making that more efficient and more clinically applicable. Um, so to support all of this um, work in terms of developing therapies, we do know that um, natural history studies and registries are very important. We don't really know how to design a clinical trial without following patients along, understanding um, how their mobility changes over a short uh, time period, biomarker development, and a number of other things. And um, so there are actually a number of active observational studies in the United States um, and certainly, if you're watching this, ask your patients to consider one of these uh, various studies, uh, many of which uh, cover a whole gamut of different forms of limb girdle muscular dystrophies. Um, beyond, um, those, um, beyond those natural history studies, um, there are several uh, what we would consider symptom control trials. Um, and so these are things where, you know, they might... Uh, make people feel better or, or potentially change the course of their disease, but not quite um, a, a full gene therapy um, program. So, um, Peter, perhaps you can um, guide us a little bit on how AEV-based gene therapy might work. The most commonly used virus for delivering gene therapy currently is the adeno-associated virus, which is often called AAV for short. And this is a small virus. It has two big advantages. One is that it's less immunogenic. That means it's less likely to trigger immune reactions than other viruses that have been tested. It also delivers DNA that doesn't integrate into the host genome. So that also avoids some, um, some potentially dangerous side effects. One of the disadvantages of AAV is that it's small, so that there's only a certain amount of DNA you can package in it. And so this is okay for some limb girdle muscular dystrophies, and then it's a little bit more challenging for others. So uh, we've seen some really promising results from uh, early clinical trials of gene therapy using the AAV vector in limb girdle muscular dystrophy. This indicates that there is a lot of promise for this approach for patients in the future, and I'm very eager to see the results of future studies. Um, so, uh, as Peter mentioned, um, you know, there are a lot of different uh, limb girdle muscular dystrophies that um, might be amenable to an AAV-based uh, gene therapy. Uh, for example, we know right now that there are active uh, um, clinical trials for AAV-based gene therapy for LGMD2I or R9, uh, which is FKRP, um, and that um, in the past there have been um, studies for um, beta sarcoglycan, LGMD2E, 
um, as well as alpha-sarcoglycan and dysferlin um, or LGMD um, 2B. So a lot of hope and promise. Um, you can go to neuro, uh, clinicaltrials.gov um, to look at these different studies and see which ones are either active and enrolling or completed um, or currently recruiting. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this presentation today. In summary, it's important to remember that genetic testing for limb girdle muscular dystrophy may lead to an accurate diagnos diagnosis, which allows for better management of patients and the ability to enroll uh, patients in natural history studies and clinical trials. The preferred method is next-generation sequencing, largely through panels. And while that's quite helpful, it has led to new problems in terms of the identification and management of variants of unknown significance, which require further investigation. All of this is through the tremendous efforts of patient advocacy groups and other partners that have made limb girdle genetic testing uh, more widely available through sponsored testing programs. And while there are no approved treatments that exist, please remember that uh, gene therapy trials, including those with AAV technology, are ongoing and should be considered. So most importantly, um, after watching this, we hope that you encourage patients with limb girdle muscular dystrophy to enroll in the natural history studies or other ongoing clinical trials, which were mentioned here and can be found on clinicaltrials.gov. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.